Built Not Born, episode 115. Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Dr. Christopher Dotson. Christopher Dotson, MD, is a board-certified sports medicine surgeon and a professor of orthopedic surgery at Thomas Jefferson's Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. Dr. Chris is also the associate head orthopedic surgeon for the Philadelphia Eagles. Go Birds! Dr. Dotson was also previously the head team physician for the Philadelphia 76ers and serves as a consultant for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Dr. Dotson and I talk work ethic, resilience, grit. We talk some parenting. We also get into some ACL repairs. We talk what someone needs to know if they hurt their elbow, knee, or shoulder. We talk about different injuries suffered by the weekend warrior and professional athlete alike. A little background, Dr. Dotson was my surgeon for my two knee surgeries over the last couple of years. He is a phenomenal surgeon. He is an awesome guy. He has such a great perspective on work ethic, resilience, empathy with the patients. Dr. Dotson does an amazing job of talking to patients through their options and what's the best course of action. Also, we just launched the Built Not Born YouTube channel. You can see the video of my interview with Dr. Dotson on YouTube. So please check that out. And I appreciate if you could give that a follow, that would be great. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Christopher Dotson. Associate Head Orthopedic Surgeon for the Philadelphia Eagles. And remember, life is built, not born. Dr. Christopher Dotson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Dr. Dotson, it's an honor to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Yeah. So uh, first of all, thanks again for having me. It's such a privilege to do this with you. Um, it's very exciting. You know, we know each other from a uh, you know, doctor-patient relationship and have found out we've had a lot of more common friends as well. So uh, great to be here. Great to be with you. So my name is uh, Chris Dotson. I am a sports medicine surgeon at uh, Rothman Orthopedics uh, based in Philadelphia. I actually see patients in uh, the Philadelphia area, Center City, as well as in Bryn Mawr. And uh, I specialized in uh, reconstruction of the shoulder, elbow, and the knee, what's commonly called sports medicine surgery. Um, I love what I do. I, I take care of, you know, high school, collegiate, professional athletes, and weekend warriors alike. Uh, and so that's uh, just a little bit about myself. Awesome. Dr. Chris, I'd like to get into where you grew up, what got you into sports medicine, and then uh, what a day in the life is. You were the team physician for the Sixers for a long time. You're the team orthopedic surgeon for the Eagles, maybe talk about a day in the life and then maybe uh, share some best practices to, to keep that weekend warrior healthy. Does that work for you? Absolutely. Yeah. So I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, which is a great place to grow up. It was a plant community by a gentleman named Rouse, the Rouse Corporation. It's about 15 miles south of Baltimore, about 45 miles north of Washington, D.C. Uh, my mother uh, was a teacher in the public school system. 
uh, in Howard County where I grew up. My father was an accountant and, you know, gr- great parents, great background. I've got an older sister, really close family. I feel very fortunate to grow up in that community and, and have, um, you know, the background I had at home, uh, which I, and I think I owe everything to my parents. I, my first love of medicine, you know, my father, I looked up at my father my whole life. I always kind of wanted to be like him. And he was an accountant and for a significant portion of my childhood, he was head of accounts payable at Howard University Hospital. And so he dealt a lot with doctors and uh, he would come home and talk about them. And the way he spoke about them, uh, particularly surgeons, he just had this admiration for them and how cool it must be. And I think he probably said to me at one point, you know, you should you should consider that. And so, you know, I idolized my father. I said, you know, maybe he's on to something. And so uh, in high school, you know, I, I was pretty aggressive. I spent some time uh, at Shock Trauma in, in Baltimore, Maryland, when I was, I think, like 17. And I actually spent a couple of nights overnight with the uh, trauma service there, if you can believe it. And I met a guy named Carnell Cooper, uh, who was just an absolute rock star trauma surgeon. And really, um, considering I was 17, he kind of took me under his wing and said, look, I'm going to show you some stuff. And I went to the OR. And the first time I went to the OR was that summer. And I remember operating with him. Just I was just watching, but he let me scrub in, which was like an unbelievable experience for me at the time. You know, where you kind of put the gown on the and the, and the gloves, and I was hooked, honestly, Joe. And I said, like, this is what I do for a living. I want to be a surgeon. I want to feel this feeling, uh, what I feel now. And I just had to figure out what kind of surgeon I wanted to be. I went to college and med school at Brown University. Uh, when I was in med school, my first summer. I spent at Mass General in Boston on the uh, tr- on the uh, thoracic surgery service, which was an amazing experience. And that summer, one of the thoracic surgeons actually said to me, "You know, you're you know, I was an athlete in college. I played soccer. He's you're an athletic guy. You should check out sports medicine surgery just one day." Uh, like a lot of people in the world, you know, people being willing to be mentors even for a day and their generosity has really. I've been fortunate, and so. There was a famous surgeon there named Bert, Bertram Zarens, who was the team doctor for the Patriots and the Red Sox at the time. Uh, one of the thoracic surgeons emailed him uh, and he said, come by the next day. And I spent the day with him in the OR. And I can tell you, and it really it really is impactful now because I realized how busy the guy was. You know, after each case, we sat down, we, we went over the case. He was explaining things to me. I'm a first year med student from Brown, not even in the Harvard system mm-hmm. uh, where he was a professor. But it was it was a great day. And I said, you know what? Like, I love I love chest surgery, but I think things will change over time with that. Um, the opportunity to work all over the body and do arthroscopy and open surgery, I think orthopedic surgery is for me and probably sports medicine. So that was, you know, it was my first summer after my first year of med school. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of when I really got into sports medicine. Yeah. Do you remember getting back? Uh, you mentioned a few moments ago, you spent a summer, like you said, 17 years old, shock trauma, University of Baltimore. Yeah. I mean, that is so unique. I'm a 17 year old want to do that. But what do you remember? Like the first time you were in the room and something crazy came in, like a gunshot or a stab wound. Like, do you remember like what that, that feeling was like first time? You I, saw do, something? I do. Cause I passed out. That's, that's how I know. I remember. So really? tell us about it. What's, what's I that? did. So I was, um, I mean, I don't know. Like, I guess I was a kind of a unique kid in some ways and that stuff I was interested in. And my parents, uh, again, were so supportive that when I would say these things, they never thought I was crazy. Like, okay, we'll go do it. And so it was like, I, I think it must've been a Saturday morning. I met, I was down there and it was probably around 10 o'clock in the morning. It wasn't too late, but anyway, um, you know, shock trauma is a sort of epicenter of trauma in that region. So people get helicoptered from all over. 
a gentleman who worked on a farm, like kind of in the outskirts of in the uh, suburbs of Maryland somewhere, he had fallen off his uh, his auger. You know, the the machine that sort of kind of uh, collects the I think it's the wheat or corn or whatever. I think it's wheat. He had fallen off of it and he got run over by it. And I remember uh, Dr. Cooper pulled me over and he goes, this is great anatomy. And I'll never forget this. You could see his carotid artery from out, from like externally. Like it had, it had peeled off all of the skin of his neck and all of his shoulder and his chest. And you wow. could actually see the artery and veins with the naked eye. And the smell was powerful because of the pesticides they use. That that was in that was sort of in his body. I mean, it was it was bizarre. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Um, and I was 17. I remember looking at it, and I remember the next thing was him, someone over me, kind of like waking me up. I just dropped. <laughs> so he smells like the farm, like the pesticides. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Right. I mean, it was, I mean, they pull you into the bay, and there's just a lot, it's like odor, and, and it was, I mean, it was very visual. Like, I mean, literally, it was like an someone had like dissected out his vascular yeah. in his neck and that's all you saw and there was you know he had you know seeds and wheat all, i mean it, it was it was he'd been helicoptered in so that was the first impressive thing i've seen he told me you might not ever see anything that that detailed again and i sure enough passed out um and they got a kick out of it but they were great about it and uh that that was the first time i saw it. i'll never forget it <clears throat> wow so you spend your time there but you go to med school at brown at what point did you decide, you know what, uh, not only do I want to be a surgeon, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon? Because yeah, that, that, that summer when I was talking about it, Mass General, I spent time with Dr. Zarens. Okay. That's when I knew I wanted to do it. And then I went back to Brown. And like all these things, again, mentorship playing a common theme in my life. Um, a guy named Peter Weiss, who's a very famous hand surgeon. Yep. I did what's called a longitudinal with him, where I worked with him once a week for a year, my second year of med school. And that was really to kind of get my foot in the door of orthopedic surgery and kind of go from there. So that's when I really honed in on it, started doing research in orthopedic surgery and knew that uh, when the time came, I would apply for that um, in, in med school. Yep. How'd you wind up in Philly? So you're from Baltimore, you trained, you went to Brown, and then you spent time in special surgery in New York. How'd you wind up in Philly? Yeah. So I did residency and fellowship at special surgery. I was there from 2003 to 2009. And then um, I was looking for a job, quite frankly. My wife's sister is a dermatologist in Philadelphia, she was training at the time. She now uh, runs an incredible practice called Bryn Dermatology. Her name is Dr. Christine Stanko. So if you have derm problems, go see her. But she was in residency and starting her practice. And we would visit her in, in Philadelphia while my wife and I were dating in residency and fellowship. And so uh, my, they're from Nebraska, from a small town in Nebraska. And so my wife was kind of like, look, if you're going to, if we're going to stay on the East Coast, uh, I'd really love to be close to my sister. It made me, made me feel more comfortable. She was they're kind of Midwest girls. And so that was my big pull. And and really Rothman wasn't looking for anybody. And I I again by the by the uh, graciousness of of some friends, Todd Albert um and Bernie Rollins, who was a mentor of my HSS, Todd was the head of uh, Rothman, and so we just connected and one thing led to another. And uh I was lucky enough to get a job at Rothman in uh really fall of 2009. So almost exactly um 14 years ago, I started practice here. Wow. Awesome. So let, let's get into your current role. So 2009, you joined Rothman. When did you start working with the sports teams, like with the Eagles, the Sixers? When did that come about? Yeah. So I, my first role, I started work being, becoming an assistant team physician with the Eagles. That was 2012. It, it kind of came about organically. They just uh, 
the trainer at the time just kind of reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to come to the combine. Um, he knew I had some team position experience as a fellow at HSS. And so I started working with him in 2012. And then um, I have to work backwards for this. But for the Sixers, I was uh, with them for eight years. And I just stopped last year. So whatever that math is, a few years later, I had the, had the opportunity and great fortune to be the head team position for the Sixers for eight years. So mm-hmm. um, I've been with, still with the Eagles now. That's, I guess, 11 years. And then the eight years of the Sixers and, and uh, amazing experience. Both organizations are first class. Uh, l- lucky to have a lot of friends in both organizations, you know, including the owners and the general managers, et cetera. And it's been great. What's an average week look like for you? Like, say, when you were at the Sixers, like when they're playing two, three games mm-hmm. a week, are you at all those games? Let's take a step back. Your average week, right? A couple of days of procedures, a couple of days of office uh, surgeries. What's your yeah, average yeah. week? So, so let's say out of season. So I see patients three days a week okay. and I operate two days a week. Okay. So, you know, I see patients, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, operate Tuesday, Thursday. And that's, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. That's what I do week in and week out. You know, I still uh, lecture at conferences and travel academically. So I may miss a day here and there or you know, when we take a vacation, but that's, that's my typical week, three days office, two days OR. During the season, you know, you had a wrinkle in that, um, you know, in the NFL season, uh, I may be covering a game on a Sunday at home, which just, you know, doesn't add much. I leave that Sunday, but you know, if I, if it's a, uh, you know, I went to the Patriots game, the first game of this year, we left Saturday afternoon. So I'll leave Saturday and, and come back Sunday. And, um, you know, which is fine. Sixers was, was more because there's more games in the NBA. Um, I, I, for the first, I would say four or five years, I went to every home game. Wow. Uh, so that was 41 home games. And then, uh, once we started making the playoffs, I always went to every playoff game mm-hmm. as I, towards the latter part of my uh, career there with the organization, I would not cover every home game and have partners cover some, I'd probably cover 85, 90% and 10% would let some, some partners cover for the experience for them and just give yeah. us a breather. But always, I always traveled for playoffs, went to every playoff game. Getting back before we get into uh, some of the procedures you do, just how busy you are with just with your regular schedule. First off, you're married, you have kids, then you then your two days of surgeries, three days of treating patients. You you can be at a six or Eagles game two three times a week. You have to be really good at saying no to things. Like you you like there's probably a lot of opportunities coming your way that you just can't fit in your calendar. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. Look, it's always a privilege to be asked to do anything, right? Including this or you know. Give a lecture somewhere, et cetera. You do have to balance your time. You know, my kids are older now. They're they're 15, 12, and 10. My son's playing high school sports. He's playing soccer right now. So, you know, I was able to make a game to his yesterday. I mean, that stuff is really starting to matter to me to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only sort of crazy. I think he has four more summers at home before he goes yeah. to college, right? So really. um, that stuff's much more important to me now. And I want to be there more. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's time management. You have to balance your life. I mean, you definitely have to say no. You usually have to say no to a lot of fun things. I'm, I'm going to have a golfer. So I would get invited to go golf trips. And, you know, a lot of times you say, I can't do it. Or if, you know, the idea of playing golf on a Wednesday afternoon is just not really, uh, not really possible. I mean, you know, I'm definitely a weekend golfer every now and then I do it. And that's really in the last several years, but you know, you, you have priorities, you know, you know, work. So there's definitely sacrifices you make, but at the same time, it's an incredibly rewarding thing to do for a living that you get a lot of satisfaction out of. So, you know, it's it's all it's all a balancing act, like like a lot of people who's you know yeah. lives. 
Absolutely. Let's get into how you and I met. So this is about 2015, 2016. I'm training jujitsu, been training for a long time. I hear a loud pop in my knee. Never heard anything like that in my life. And I try to get up, I fall down. And um, I think it was just, it was like, at, for for me, it was one of the more traumatic things that happened. I had young kids at the time. I tried to walk down the steps of the academy, like my knee shaking. I almost fell down the steps walking down. Like I had no idea that like my ACL was gone. And anyway, waited about a week. Long story short, it wasn't getting any better. Pain was gone, but I'd fall down every time I changed direction. So I started, I know a lot of physicians in my line of work. And so I started asking, who would you, where would you go? Who would you see to check this out? And one name kept coming up and that was Chris Dotson. Everyone's like, you got to see Chris Dotson. You got to see Chris Dotson. So you and I, uh, I scheduled an appointment with you. And I'll tell you what, right off the bat, you just gave confidence in the first five minutes, I was no longer like worried. Like you were like, we got this. I'm going to knock this out of the park. I've, I've done 800 of these. Like I, I, like you're going to be in 10 months, you're going to be back to doing what you're doing. Can you describe when someone comes to you, maybe it's their first big surgery that they're getting, the role you have to play. I don't say it's cheerleader, but how you describe what you do and how they'll be after the process is done. Yeah. Well, first of all, those are very kind words of you. Thank you. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that, that obviously comes with some experience, right? I mean, you can't, you have to be confident when you first start practice, but deep down, um, you know, you go, look, I, I you know, I've done this as, as I'm training, but now that it's really on me, you know, you're always nervous and you're always careful. I, I can't tell you how many sleepless nights you have. I still have them now, lesser than I used to, but when you're starting off, you have a lot of sleepless nights because you worry about how your patients are doing. I mean, that's the one thing I would say about our profession, what I do is that people are trusting you to like take care of them, right? People are coming to you injured, hurt, scared, and they are trusting you to make them better. So um, that's a great responsibility. It's it's really one of the more tremendous responsibilities one could have, right? So I take it very seriously. At the time that I met you, I had enough experience to know that, that I felt confident that I could fix you and make you better. And you do want to convey that to the patient because it's scary. I mean, it is, I mean, I, you know, I, this week I probably saw nine high school collegiate athletes with torn ACLs. And these are kids on scholarship. Some kids supposed to go play somewhere. I mean, a couple, you know, parents are saying, well, we have to figure out like, when are we going to tell the coach at name your school that they just got hurt? And they're worried about that. So you've, you've got to convey confidence that, look, I mean, we can get you better. I can get you better. You'll be back plan, you know, and, and, you know, yes, there are issues that happen sometimes, but overwhelming majority of the time it's successful. And that's a really important thing for the patients to feel. And, and I've done enough now that I feel like I can usually deliver on that promise. Not always, I guess, but usually I can. And so I want them to feel that so that they, you know, more than just trust me, have a good frame of mind about going into the procedure and feel confident. Cause I think that's a, I think that's a big thing for them, you know? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And and working with you, the experience was so good. I thought I'd do it a second time. So like three, <laughs> so like three years later, I'm throwing batting practice. Uh, I'm coaching my son's baseball team and I go to throw and I just hear a pop, different type of pop, but in the same knee went down, hurt way more than the, than the ACL. I had no idea. thought I might've blown the graph out. I had no idea. And then I obviously I, I come to see you. And as I'm walking in after the MRI, like I'm not even in the room yet. You're like, your graph's fine. You're fine. I got you covered. You're, you're, you're fine. It's no big deal. Rewinding a few minutes ago, you said you saw nine high school kids that tore their ACL. Like growing up, I played baseball, basketball. Like I don't remember 
anyone tearing their ACL like 25 years ago when I was growing up. Now it's like so many kids. I know that I, I know a handful of my kids' friends that tore their ACL. Is that what you see or? Yeah, I mean, same way. I I played soccer in college. I played a lot of sports growing up. I don't remember anyone injuring their ACL. I remember anyone wearing knee braces or having crutches in high school, Mm -hmm. male or female. I I don't think I even thought about getting hurt when I was that age. So I think it's a common. I I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone does. I definitely think it's a combination of the the denominators higher, more kids are playing sports. I think turf plays a role. A lot of these schools run turf and it's more grippy. Uh, I think that's absolutely a role. And probably maybe some other environmental factors. So, um, you know, exposure, you know, they're playing year round, a lot of sports, but it's definitely more common. We definitely see it in young females more than young males. It's concerning because yes, the techniques we do now are are really successful, but look, I've got two daughters, I mean, and and a son, but I, you know, I don't want anyone in my family tearing their ACL. Right. So, um, even though, you know, we have people that can fix it. So yeah, it's, it's more of an issue for sure. Let's describe the ACL process. What is the ACL? If you could just describe to the listeners, and then why do we need one? And then when it when it tears, what are the options? Yeah, so the ACL stands for anterior cruciate ligament. There's also a posterior cruciate ligament. They're in the knee. They cross, which is why they're called cruciates. ACL is responsible for really uh, rotational stability. So not only front to back, but also you know sort of rotational. We call pivoting stability. So you don't need one to walk. You don't even need one to run. But if you're going to participate in sports and pivot on your knee, without that stability, um, you have a high chance of causing more damage to your knee. So that's why we address ACL insufficiency is that without an ACL, if you're an active person, um, for example, your medial meniscus is a stabilized front-to-back motion. So without an ACL, you can put more strain on your medial meniscus or on the cartilage and cause more damage down the line. So that's that's what the ACL does, and that's why we we address them. Most commonly, we do what's called a reconstruction. So that's where a, some type of graft is put in your knee that becomes your ACL. And you can, you know, big picture, either use your own tissue called autograft or your own tissue called allograft. And there's pros and cons of each, but that's traditionally how we did it. There is some data now that suggests that there is a population who could benefit from ACL repair, where you kind of keep the native ACL and repair it. And so I personally think there's a very small percentage of the population that could benefit from that. And I still think there's data to be done to suggest if that's a long-term fix, but nonetheless, that has become more popular, but that's really how we we treat the ACL. We either try and repair it or much more commonly we reconstruct it. Yeah. When you reconstruct the graft, I remember when I went, I was probably like 42 or so at the time, 43, you just right off the bat, you said, you know what, you're a perfect cadaver graft, like that you're a perfect candidate. You describe like the maybe someone who's listening now that's going through this. What are what are the pros and cons of each of the grafts? Well, yeah, absolutely. So you can either use your own tissue, what's called an autograft, or cadaver graft, which is called an allograft. So um, the difference is that in, in the literature, and, and I will say that you know, ACE reconstruction has been very well studied by people much smarter than me in detail, where we have really good big data sets now. So we know that when you're younger, and in most of the studies. 25 is kind of the cutoff. Using your own tissue is much better than using cadaver tissue. The failure rate is about 30% higher using cadaver tissue than your own tissue. So within your own tissue, they all have advantages. You can use your own quad tendon, your own hamstring tendon, your own patella tendon. They're probably the three most common. The pros and cons of each are that, you know, some have smaller incisions. Some of those tissues are just what we call soft tissue versus patella tendon has bone. And so how you fix it and the healing process are all in theory, a little bit different. They all work well, but 
you know, we tend to think that patellar is probably the best for elite pivoting athletes. And the other two are really good for, you know, other populations who are also active and young, but that's kind of like the breakdown versus cadaver. We tend to think of is, is the benefit is that there's less pain. You're not taking a graft from the person, less incision. So for patients who are older, have a job, have a career, we, um, we really highlight that uh, as a good option. And, and in the, look at the studies, as you age, it seems like the type of graph matters less. And that's certainly by the time you're in your 40s and 50s and you know 60s, um, even that a cadaver is a really good option because it provides the stability you, you need, but you're not dealing with some of the side effects of taking the graph from you. So mm-hmm. as you age, harvesting the graph from you from another location can be a source of pain, sometimes even chronically. And if you're just trying to be active, work out, do jujitsu, ski in your 40s and 50s, you think that cadaver does the job. And, and the studies have shown that. So there are exceptions to each. I operate in two friends of mine who are really high-level skiers. They they hella ski in Alaska and Austria, and they wanted patella tendon grafts. So I did it. But th- that's kind of the broad stroke concepts that, that, I, that I tell my patients. Now, would a pro athlete, just like a 25-year-old running back, center fielder, whatever, would is there... Would they ever get a cadaver graph? Is that like crazy or is that like just not recommended? Or Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I guess in theory they could. I can tell you that there's been surveys amongst NFL team physicians and people who take care of professional athletes. What graph would you use for that exact scenario? And I would say 99% use patella tendon autographed. Okay. And in gotcha. fact, I don't know a professional athlete in the NFL that's had an ACL recently uh, I don't know one that's heading on the graft. I've, I've, you know, I've certainly done at least six or seven in the last couple of years. They've all been patella autographs, and and same with, you know, some of the players we're taking care of who have surgery elsewhere, or you know, people we we hear about. It's all been patella tendon. That's a pretty pretty standardized graft in the NFL. And say like ten years out, let's just say the graft's still there. You're feeling good. Is there any different? Is there any data that shows that one graft's better than the other ten years out after? A successful yeah, I mean, they, they, they tend to point out that patellar and grafts, a lot of studies point out to higher risk of arthritis down the line. You know, no one's really sure why that is. I personally think it's because their knee feels stable and they may be pushing the knee more than a, a graft so where they don't feel like they can get back. But um, in theory, in theory, no. I mean, patellar and graft has more kneeling pain, hamstring grafts. People feel like their hamstrings can be weak. You know, there's been studies look at ballerinas and they feel like you know, they have difficulty competing because their hamstrings are weak, quad graphs, same thing. So they've all got their downsides, but overall they all work really well. And, you know, we've, it's a highly successful operation in general. One of the Cowboys team doctors, yeah, uh, I think he did a study, looked at like, uh, likely you can return to play. And it was, it was pretty, it was pretty good. So overall it works pretty good. When you did my ACL, I had a friend that uh, blew theirs out like a month before skiing out West and they went to one of your partners and they, your partner recommended the cadaver. And he goes, no, I looked at the data. I went to patella. And then here we are, like I'm a month behind him. And I actually saw him in church. I'm kneeling down, no pain. He still can't kneel down like three yeah. months behind me. I'm like making fun of pointing at him, laughing at him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, dude, wrong, wrong, wrong call. Wrong, yeah, wrong probably, probably the biggest side effect of that graft is kneeling pain. Your other specialty is shoulder. What, what do people got to know about rotator cuffs and shoulder pain? And what, what can you share? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I take care of, you know, a, a plethora of, of shoulder pathology, labrums, rotator cuffs, et cetera. I think rotator cuffs are very popular. Another thing we've studied a lot, unfortunately, as we age, tearing your rotator cuff becomes uh, an increasing possibility. You know, the tendon gets more brittle, doesn't have great blood supply. I-, I will say that 
I hear this a lot. Rotator cuff tear can mean a lot of things. It can mean, and I say this to patients in the office, if I took a piece of paper and made the tiniest rip in it, well, that's a tear. And if I took the same paper and ripped it all the way across, except for the last 1%, that's also a tear. Mm. They're both tears. And so I always say, make sure you're comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges. You know, partial tears, small tears, by and large, can be treated conservatively without surgery. It's when you start talking about full thickness tear, so through and through, think about ripping the paper all the way across, and then those that start to retract away from the bone, those are the ones that we really should be managed surgically, and that's what uh, the majority of the ones that we operate on. Right. So someone who's 40, 50 years old has a partial tear in the rotator cuff. Are you usually saying like just PT, no surgery? A- absolutely. I-, I try and rehab them, you know, occasionally maybe an injection for inflammation, rehab, and usually pretty successful treating it that way. That's great. So let's get to your day. Like you're in the OR, right? The, the multiple times I've seen you like in the office, from just my perspective, you're so friendly, so chill, so outgoing. But then like surgery, you got your game face on, right? Like you show up, like you're, you're ready to walk in the huddle and like it's, uh, you know, yeah. game winning drive, right? How do you get in the zone? Like what's the zone like surgery day? Yeah. You know, like I think that you do, there is a little, I mean, I was operating today. I think there is a little bit of a switch you turn on. I mean, I think, you know, the minute you walk in the center and you start marking patients and looking over your schedule, you know, you probably do go into a certain zone. You know, I, I'm blessed. I have an unbelievable PA. I have an unbelievable team that works with me in the OR. I have great residents and fellows. So, you know, they all have their game faces on. And I'm always like, I got to make sure I, I match the intensity, so to speak, because the team is ready to go. So they get there early. They're ready to rock. And so you know, we usually put some good music on and I get in that that happy place. And, and you know, it's the environment that really creates such a such a great place to to kind of do your thing. So um, I definitely have it, but you know, the, the staff is great and they, they create the environment. They know what music I want to hear. And uh, we, you know, we, we, we get it done. All right. So first off your PA, Melissa, right? Yes. It's fantastic. Phenomenal. Right. Just phenomenal. But music, what's your, what's your flow? Like, what are you, what are you listening to these days in the OR? Yeah. I, I'm a big weekend fan. So I listen okay. to a lot of weekend. Uh, I love his music and I love playing in the OR. Um, so usually, um, one room is that, and the other room is, uh, um, usually some type of like nineties R and B or, um, there's a, there's a Amazon station, I believe hip hop, hip hop barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So nineties R and B that kind of barbecue, hip hop barbecue, that's the kind of the other room. And so we kind of have a little, you know, one of each, I have one nurse who's actually amazing. She created a Spotify playlist for me. Okay. Like my favorite song. So she just plays that on loop and, you know, most surgeons were, were very, um, uh, kind of not superstitious, but we like routine. Oh yeah. yeah so absolutely. we just play this. She plays it every week for me. Like, and mm-hmm. I just, it's basically the same 30 songs, but that's what I want to hear. What's the, uh, would you know the name of the Spotify playlist? Is, your, is it your name? I or, think uh, it's, I think it's my name. I think she, I think it actually says dots and playlists. All right. I'm going to put that in the show notes. If you don't mind. Uh, you said nineties R and B we talking like new edition, Belle, Bib DeVoe, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. New Force edition, uh, key sweat. Yep. Um, you know, um, uh, exactly. That, that kind Mr. of music. Oh, I'm thinking uh, a little Mr. Telephone Man, like stuff Mr. like that. Telephone, absolutely. <laughs> Let's go. That's awesome. Uh, some that's... Jodeci comes on there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's fantastic. How about this? First, and thank you for the, the, the surgeries. Like two surgeries in. What's the record? What's the most surgeries someone's had with you? I mean, unfortunately, I've had patients have. I mean, I had one gentleman. I think both shoulders, both knees. Okay. Um, so that's probably, um, um, both knees is not 
uncommon, unfortunately, young athletes. Yeah. Um, so probably four. Four. Okay. I don't want to tie that, but if I came back, you get a t-shirt the third time or no? Do you get a little like, <laughs> exactly. got some alumni? Let's transition over a point of the interview we call share your secret so our listeners can get to know you a little bit more as a person. How about this? Most high achievers like yourself are real big routine people. Like they start their day or the way they end their day. Like what's either like the first, like first hour or last hour of your day look like? Like what's your routine? Yeah. So I, I mean, I definitely have routine. So I work out every Monday morning. Uh, now it's Tuesday, but I work out twice a week uh, at 6 a.m. with a trainer. Nice. So that's kind of standardized. And then the third day, I operate two days a week. So the third day I'm not operating, we have uh, at what's called academic conference. Mm-hmm. So that's where we, we meet with the fellows. We go over research. We go over talks. We present um, uh, uh, talks on different concepts and, and, and discuss them, uh, which is which is great and necessary to keep me sharp. And also, to, you know, we're, we're fortunate to train residents and fellows. So those are the three days I'm not operating. Mm-hmm. Two of them I work out with a trainer. The third day um, we, we did academic conference. So the alarm is set always at the same time. It's 520 every day. Um, and then the days I work out at six, I'm in the gym at six. Other day I'm in the office around six, 10 or 15 for 630 conference. Okay. Um, the OR on Wednesdays and Thursdays, I start at 630 AM. So same alarm time. And that's Wednesday, Thursday. And that's just like, that's Monday through Friday, rinse and repeat. Um, I usually in the office days and done around 435 and then the OR days about the same. And, uh, and usually, you know, I get home and, and try and be a, be a good husband and dad, uh, as long as I'm not going to a game or something like that or a meeting. But um, yeah, very routine. Um, you know, every day is kind of it's like Groundhog Day. I know what I'm doing each and every day, and um, it, it's become just kind of like kind of my thing. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. How about this? With all all the stuff you've going on, like when you need like to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? Yeah. So so uh, this I listen. I normally listen to ESPN every morning. I've gotten into podcasts lately. There's a great podcast called How Leaders Lead by okay. David Novak. Yeah. Uh, and I've been listening to that uh, uh, pretty, on a pretty regular basis. It's amazing. So I'm listening to that most mornings and evenings. And in the spirit of routine, I call my parents every Monday, Friday uh, awesome. on the way to the office. I just do because uh, it's like a 30 minute drive after working out. And so I just, I always call them after working out. I just do. It's kind of my thing. So I catch up with them, um, which is great. And then um, when I want to relax, I mean, golf, I am definitely a golf nut. Um, that is um, on the weekends, especially during golf season. I'm, a, I'm an early riser because of my job. I never really sleep in. So the kids like to sleep in um, and so does my wife. So I'm usually, uh, I'll get up and sometimes I'll go for a run, but oftentimes I'll go to the range and hit balls for an hour and a half and just clear my head. I, I could hit golf balls in a range for hours and not zen. stop. And it's just like your Zen. Yeah. It's like my Zen. I love it. So I do that a lot, uh, to kind of relax. And, um, I try and do that during golf season, uh, most weekends. And then some weeknights, honestly, I'll just go to the range and chip and putt for 30 minutes. Yeah. That's also kind of, that's how I kind of clear my head. So that's I really awesome. enjoy it. That's kind of what really relaxes me the most. Yeah. That's great. You mentioned your mom and dad and how great they were and just what, what great influences they were to you. Like what's the, what's the the lesson if you had to define something you learned from your mom, something you learned from your dad, what, what they teach you? Yeah, I would say my mother, um, you know, she was a stickler for detail. 
uh, a stickler for presentation, how you presented yourself, mm-hmm. a stickler for if you said you're going to do something, you do it. And she was great that way. Like she's, she was so, she worked so hard for us. and was so protective of us growing up and her family was kind of everything to her. And so I would say like, that's what I really learned to her. She's an extremely hard worker. Mm-hmm. She's an extremely hard worker. And I think work ethic was probably the other quality I got from her. Like just working hard, doing what you said you would do. And I think being a, a signal for detail was kind of like what I really picked up from my mother. You know, she mm-hmm. was always immaculately dressed every morning for work as a teacher. She uh, was very hardworking. She takes tremendous pride in her job. And she was serious. She was she was no nonsense. So I think I got that. I think I got that from her. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, I probably got any other quality I have from my father. I mean, he, my dad's like the ultimate gentleman. Um, he's the coolest person I've ever met. Um, very knowledgeable, constantly reading, and he sort of um, was great in that he, you know, he's he grew up in a really you know unique time in our country. My dad's eighty seven, so he grew up with segregation, all these things, but he sort of never really let that carry into how he wanted me to live and raise. And he wanted me to be very well-rounded, um, again, hard worker. Um, and he's just this cool guy. I mean, he just, I always wanted to be just like him. You know, he was another guy, very, very slick dresser and very, very suave, debonair, and just kind of knew a lot about everything. Um, and so that was, I just, you know, my dad was kind of my idol growing up. I, I really wanted to be like him and, and, um, I probably never be the daddy he was to me, but, uh, I always try, but yeah, they were, they were great. They, they had a really significant impact on my life, which I'm very fortunate for. That is, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. It's something I struggle a little, little bit yeah. with as a parent, like growing up, right? Your dad, he was an accountant. Your mom was a school teacher. Did you say? Correct. Right? <laughs> so you grew up, right? And then like, you know, you probably gave you everything you needed. Right? You, you came out with this unbelievable work ethic and grit and grind. How do you transfer as a parent? that same grit and grind when maybe that you're maybe at another status with your family, like you maybe just, maybe yeah. just how much you make a year. It just, it's different than the way you grew up. And like, how do you instill that grit, tenacity and toughness in your kids when they didn't have to grow up in the environment you grew up in? Does that yeah. make sense? Well, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the short answer is I have no clue. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really don't. I, I will say so that hard. I try. Yeah. Um, my dad gave me a lot of speeches growing up and mm-hmm. I, I'm guilty of doing the same thing to my son. And I really appreciated my dad doing it. And I think um, my son probably gets sick of him from time to time, but you know, I try and instill those principles of like work ethic and integrity mm-hmm. uh, and commitment. And, and and grit is probably the word that you use that I relate to the most. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I, I know I was not the smartest growing up in school, certainly not in college definitely not in med school and even now amongst my partners. But if anything, I felt like I had a little bit of grit or my father was always like, there's no excuse for anyone to outwork you. You know, you, that's the one thing you can control. So I try and saw that in the kids. Now I don't want to be too overbearing. I mean, certainly times have changed. I understand that. I can't expect them to relate potentially to some of the things that I related to because we have a different lifestyle than, than what I grew up with. But I do tell them that it's important to have integrity, work ethic, honor, carry yourself a certain way so, and to be resilient. You know, my son recently went through something that was, you know, he was, you know, kind of down about. And I said, look, you're going to face adversity in life and you got to pick yourself back up and, and go battle again. You know, you got to be 
I, I sent him in the morning that that famous Roosevelt speech about the man in the arena. Mm-hmm. I emailed it to him. I said, this is what it's about in life. And, you know, I sent him Kobe speeches and yeah. Jordan speeches, like, you know, having resiliency and grit and dealing with adversity is really part of life and how you can deal with that. And the successful people are, I think, the ones that become successful because it's inevitable, you know? And so it's impossible to explain to a 15-year-old or a 12-year-old or 10-year-old, but um, you almost have to embrace it because it is going to happen. And you have to say, these are the challenges in the face. And you know what? Like, I'm going to show that I can bounce back and how much sweeter it is when you are able to bounce back and achieve, you know? Yeah. That's the kind of things I try and instill in the kids. Uh, I have no idea if it's working. Yeah. But I try. You have no idea as a parent. You, have no, you just do the best you can with what you have at the time it happens. And you just hope for the best, right? Like there's yeah. no playbook. There's no manual. Now, great job. Thank you for, for sharing that. You talked about grit. There's a great book by Angela Duckworth, The Grit Book. What, what book influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? Um, I mean, these are going to be weird, but I'm going to share it anyway. So, so I, I still am a little bit of a dreamer. So when I read great Gatsby, when I was growing up, I remember thinking like, this guy is so cool. Now, yes, he's a tragic figure, but the parties and the lifestyle, I remember trying to visualize that. And I was, when I was in residency, one of our attendings was a sailor and he actually sailed in Long Island. I was on the boat with him and he actually sailed through what F. Scott Fitzgerald was describing as the two, uh, the two coasts, the East, I think it's the East and the West egg. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it, but, uh, uh-huh. uh, you can actually see in Long Island in the sound where that is. So that, that was a really influential book. Um, that, that kind of, I always really, um, I really thought was cool. Yeah. You know, l- l- later in life, I've read books that I really like. I mean, I thought Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog was incredible. How great's that book? Uh, incredible. such a great book. So fascinating. Oh, his, his story to Nike. I mean, just, uh, is is really good. I read Steve Schwartzman's What It Takes mm-hmm. on vacation a couple of years ago. I, I I thought that was a really impactful book for me. Even now, to like um, that that book is full of grit. That those are other ones. Those are two I can think of that have really in my later life really impacted me to to work hard, to have grit, to achieve. And really, you know, these people that are large in life, you hear the story of how they started out and the uncertainty and the risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's inspiring. You know, it oh. really is. So um, those are those are a few. I'm reading a book now. I got a friend of mine named Mike Bamberg. I'm a big golf golf guy. There's a book called The Ball in the Air, which okay. I'm reading right now currently, which is just a story about golf and a love affair of golf that all of us crazy golfers have. Uh, and he's just a beautiful writer and um, fortunate to call him a little bit of a friend. And that's what I'm reading right now. It's really good. I'll put that in the show notes as well. A shoe dog reminds me a little bit like when you read a book about the American Revolution, like you're three quarters through the book and there's like, there's no way the Americans win. And like shoe dog, there's no way Nike stays in business. Like, like it, it should not be, right. it should run out of business 17 times. Like right? When you read it, like there's no way this is about Nike because I know what Nike is. And right now the sound like this guy's dead in the water. You know? Yeah, it's not. He's dead. There's no chance he comes out. Like there's a situation after situation, like there's no way he makes through this and he's dead. Crazy. Now, thanks for sharing that. There's some amazing books there. You mentioned golf. So, all right, who's your perfect foursome? You're golf, and you could have any three people in the history of the earth, dead or alive, golf with you. Who are you golfing with? So, Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. Okay. Guess sure. So. Yep. Um, Tiger. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure. For yeah. sure. No, no doubt. And then, um, that's a great question. I'm probably going... I'll tell you what, my dad, me, Tiger, and Jordan, I'll take all day long. Oh my gosh. So good. Your dad, Tiger, 
and Jordan. How great would that be? Yeah, I'll take it all. And that would be that would be dreamy. Where would you play? What course would you pick? Our Pine Valley. Pine Valley, yeah. yeah. And that, uh, that's yeah, is that your favorite? Uh that is that's my favorite golf course, yeah. Yeah, I have a friend that just got on like a month ago and he was like, it was like a religious experience. He, he said it was just phenomenal. Yeah. That is awesome. Man. Pine Valley, so cool. How about, no, thanks. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that. A couple of fun questions here. How about what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most positively impacted your life? Think of something that's not that expensive, but you just love. Well, that's a great question. Probably, I mean, honestly, probably something. There's there's a few things that I've bought the kids under that price point that like I could tell. I mean, my son asked for a Kelly Green Eagles jersey recently. I don't know if that was hundred dollars or less. I can't remember, but something I probably buy the kids or my wife like where I really knew they wanted it and it made them really happy. Like when you buy the yeah. kids something they've always wanted, they really get this joy. Um, I bought my daughter, my youngest daughter. I mean, it's like so silly, but like a, a, a teddy bear. For Valentine's Day, I always buy my daughter's Valentine's Day presents. My awesome. son does not want them. And she still has them in the front of her bed. Some, stuff, stuff like that where you kind of see the impact it has on the kids, I think would be, for me, pretty meaningful. Yeah, that's great. How about this? How about what do you believe that's true even though you can't prove it? Is there any, any belief you have that, that, you, that you can't be proven, but you just believe it? The harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah, uh, so true. So true. My mind's like karma. Like you do enough nice things for other people, like the universe rewards you eventually. Like I, I just believe in the karma effect. Like, but you're saying so hard work creates your own luck. You're saying, yeah, like luck is you can't prove luck, and you can't prove that's true. Yep. But I, I really do. I mean, I, karma is funny. You said that it would be a second one for me. Yeah, I, I do believe in karma. I'm, a, I'm a little superstitious, mm-hmm. and I do believe in karma. But yeah, I think like I look, everyone needs to be lucky, and I think yeah. that. The more you work, the luckier you get, and you can't prove it, and you don't know when that luck is going to come. I mean, I, I could, I have several examples in my life where I've been lucky, but you don't know when that's going to come. But I think that I just feel like that's why it's important to keep working at it, working at it, because random things will happen for you. No, so true, so true. How about this? What is the worst advice you see or hear being dispensed in your field? I think that. You want to be passionate about what you what you do. And I I'm I'm a passionate guy, but I think like it's a little more than that. And I think if you're just saying, I want to follow my passion, that can lead you all kind of down different roads. I do think you have to have a little bit of a game plan. Mm-hmm. And I do think that you should follow what you're good at, you know? Um, and I think the better you that's something you develop more passion. I saw a really smart guy. On Instagram recently, like some inspirational speech, he was talking to, I think, business school students. He said, you know, you hear these billionaires say, just follow your passion. He goes, you know, what a load of crap. He goes, it's usually from a guy who made billions selling, you know, like, like, you know, like uh, staplers, you know, or something. He's like, so I'm not, I'm not knocking passion, but I always tell the residents fellows, like, look, have a game plan. Make sure that, yes, you want to follow what you're passionate about in your career in medicine, but also like what you're good at. And also like, have an understanding of maybe the, the pros and cons with regards to a lifestyle that you want to live and how that matches up with your job, because you don't want to get down the line and figure out that like, this isn't really what I, what I had in mind as far as living. So yeah. yes, passion is very key. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not, but you have to have some practicality to your passion so that you're happy down the line, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. The Seth Godin, he's an author, I really like a business author I like. And one of his quotes are action creates mood, right? And then once you get good at something, that passion will build. Even if it's like you're not the most passionate about it, but you keep working and grinding, like you talk yeah. about the grit. Five years later, where you're like, wow, I'm pretty proficient at this. I'm pretty freaking good at this. You might get passionate about it once you get good. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, no, that's so true. How about this? One thing we didn't talk about, I skipped over the question, COVID. So here you are in a practice where you created this big practice. You're in Rothman. You're treating the Sixers, the, the Eagles. You're doing um, surgeries two days a week. COVID happens. Literally, like elective surgery shut down just about overnight. What went through your mind there, and how did you like? How did you handle all that? It was pretty wild. I, I will say two things about COVID. Number one, there was a point in time where I thought my profession may change forever that I actually wasn't sure when we were ever operating again. It, it was the weird feeling. It was only six weeks of that feeling. But, you know, I mean, I did in, in, in April of COVID, I did four surgeries the entire month. Wow. And the last two weeks of March, I think I did like two. Okay. And to give you an idea, I probably, you know, I'm averaging a little bit over 50 a month. So it was a pretty dramatic change. And I never knew we'd go back in the office. I thought medicine would be changed forever. I thought we'd be wearing masks in the office forever. Mm -hmm. And there was no end in sight. And so from a standpoint of work, it was stressful. I was going for a lot of runs, a lot of walks, trying to calm myself down about like, when I'm going to be working again. I had patients I was communicating with over laptop who had had surgery and were asking me, what can I do certain things and trying to communicate. I, I had mothers of patients with torn ACLs on scholarships saying, this is crazy. They're saying ACLs are elective, like we're not going to be able to return for next season, our scholarship. So from that standpoint, it was stressful. From a personal standpoint, it was actually the best that ever happened to our family. Okay. I spent the most time I've ever spent with my kids mm -hmm. and my wife. We watched a lot of Netflix. We hung out at home a lot, a lot of cards, a lot of family walks. Mm -hmm. And I think that it made me really realize how much I more I wanted to be home with my family mm -hmm. and nothing would have ever shown me that. So I think we all became closer. We played a lot of backyard soccer games, me uh, and the three kids. Um, and we had a blast and it was great. And so from that, I'll forever be grateful that it opened my eyes to, you know, being more present at home. It brought my wife and I closer. Um, it was great. You know, I drank a little too much red wine, but uh, <laughs> other than that, it was fun. So I gained some weight. Uh, my friends and I were doing Peloton challenges, so we kind of got yeah. big into it. But uh, it, it, from that standpoint, personally, it was actually an awesome thing. So it was kind of crazy how professionally stressful, not good, but personally fun. That first, thank you for sharing that. And that was a crazy mm -hmm. time. But I could imagine, like, one maybe someone who just blew their ACL out like the day before, or the weekend before, and has an appointment to see you, and they had to wait seven <laughs> weeks or something to yep. see that. Yep. That that uncertainty is crazy. No, thanks for sharing that. How about um, you mentioned wine? What's your wine? So I uh, I really enjoy red wine. Um, I, I tend to drink a lot of uh, California reds. Uh, I like I like blends and Cabernet, but I like blends a lot. And uh, and then along those lines, I, I'm a Bordeaux lover as well. So um, those are kind of what I gravitate towards. I do like white wine as well, white Burgundies and some California Chardonnays and Sonoma Chardonnays. So that's kind of what I what I enjoy. Uh, the guy that got me into it unfortunately passed away last summer tragically. He was hit by hit by a, a car on his bike oh, wow. kind of Russ Windsor, but he, he turned me on to wine when I was a resident. It was uh, one of the great things about residency other than, other than 
learning how to be a, a good surgeon was some of these relationships. And so he turned me on to it and got me hooked on it. And I, it's something I really enjoy. And I was, I think of him often. It's, it's a, it's kind of a tragedy, but yeah, it's definitely a passion. I, I love it. I mean, that and golf are probably my two, two vices, which I guess aren't too bad. That's not too bad. That's um, pretty good. How about wrapping up here? How about the one, one medical question I, I skipped over? How do you assess, where are you with dietary supplements on Instagram? All I see is stuff with joints and cartilage and osteobiflex, glucosamine, conjoitin. Where, like, what's the average person need to know about that? Yeah, I think the reality is like, look, I don't think any of it's harmful. I think whether or not it makes as beneficial is debatable. You know, I had a mentor tell me one time, and it's very true. It's kind of like saying, you're going to, if you're bald, you're going to eat hair. You know, like, I don't know how you eat cartilage and it goes to your knees, but whether or not it has some anti-inflammatory benefits, it might. I don't think it's harmful, but it's hard to believe it's that effective. I think I, I am a fan of diet, especially, you know, I'm 46 now. I think diet is huge. You know, your metabolism is slow down. Yep. So eating properly, I've tried to change my diet habits, and I think that is beneficial. But the stuff about, you know, your joints and, and, and glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate, I think there's one paper in Lancet that suggests maybe some changes radiographically. But the reality is it probably can't hurt. I've had people anecdotally tell me it helps. I think it's fine. I just don't know if there's any science to really say it's doing anything for you. Yeah, I, I think that's a it's a that's a conversation you and I had back uh, a, a couple of years back, and and I think you described it as like an eighty dollar a month placebo. Like yeah. it just and so I got you, you saved me eighty bucks a month since our last uh, this. <laughs> so I appreciate you there. Um, cool. Just wrapping up here, a couple fun questions. How about Dr. Chris? We talked about a lot, your parents, what you learned from them, your time at shock trauma, like your time with the sports teams, uh, your, your current practice, your role as a parent and a husband. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? Well, I'm sure people listening don't need any advice from me. I, I would say that if I could tell... um if I could tell kids one thing, I would say that, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of concerning things in our country for sure. Um, but it is a place if you really follow your dreams, I think you can make anything happen. I, I really believe that, you know, I am, I feel very fortunate, lucky to be where I am. And I can tell you that I would have never imagined some of the lucky and fortunate things I've had in my life from where I grew up and my background. Uh, and I just, if you, you said to me, like the one thing that my parents taught me, I, I would say what I owe them the most is that I always, I believed in myself and I did so because they believed in me. I, I didn't know, I didn't know any better, but they believed in me and it made me believe myself. And so I was never afraid to try and to follow my dreams. And I think that like, for kids, it's really important for them to understand that. Like you can really make it happen. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, but that's what America still offers. And so that, that would be my advice. <clears throat> that, that is great. Last question, Dr. Christopher Dotson. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? I would say, if this would be long, I would probably tattoo the entire poem, If, by yeah. Roger Kepling on my body. So I I, uh, I gave that to my son when he turned, I believe, 14. I, I bought one and had it printed and put in a frame. So 
the poem If by Rudyard Kipling, I think really summarizes my views on life. And and it's and it's probably not achievable to be all those things in the poem, but mm-hmm. I think that's how you should strive to be a person. And so I I would I would on my I'd probably I'd probably tattoo if on my back. It'd be a back tattoo. It would definitely be a back tattoo. Yeah, there's the whole poem. <laughs> 12, 12 point. That is awesome. That's the first time in 114 episodes someone had a poem. That is great. The poem If by Kipling. Now, Dr. Christopher Dotson, I would like to thank you for joining us. Um, thank you personally for all your help in the past, man. Two surgeries down, and literally I wake up and I don't even think about the knee ever. So fantastic work. You are amazing at what you do. And just thanks for bringing the confidence and for all the help in the past. I really, really appreciate it. My, my pleasure, my privilege. Uh, and thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor to be here with you this last hour. And uh, so thanks so much. So people are looking for you and what you do online. Where can we find you? Yeah, just the Rothman Orthopedics website. I'm easy to find. I see patients in Center City and Bryn Mawr. Certainly uh, would be my privilege to take care of anyone that needs some help. So thanks. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes. Dr. Dawson, great to see you, man. Good to see you, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, buddy. Thanks so much. Take care. Good to see you.